Hello, WTIP Boundary Waters podcast listeners. My name is Eric Lawson. I'm the retail manager for Paragus Northwoods Company in Ely, Minnesota. Our family-owned business has been in operation since 1979, which will make 2021 our 42nd year in operation. In addition to our retail store, discount outlet, and independent bookstore in downtown Ely, we operate the Boundary Waters catalog and website to reach our customer base when they can't be in northern Minnesota pursuing their Boundary Waters dreams. Our direct mail catalog reaches hundreds of thousands of households every year, bringing our premium gear, gift, book, and clothing assortment to our customers nationwide. To request your own free catalog, visit BoundaryWatersCatalog.com. We are also a full-service outfitter specializing in Boundary Waters and Quetico canoe trips out of the Ely area. If you are looking for help planning your own wilderness trip, our outfitting crew has decades of experience helping travelers plan successful canoe trip adventures tailored specifically for your crew. 2020 was an incredibly busy and exciting season, and we are expecting 2021 to be the same. If you are planning a trip for the upcoming season, we recommend reaching out as soon as possible. Permits are already starting to get a little thin on certain dates. The sooner you give us a call, the sooner we can reserve the permits and gear you will need to visit this incredible wilderness area. For those of you who have supported our business, thank you. For those of you not familiar with Paragus, please stop in during your next visit to Ely and say hello to your friends in the great north woods. To learn more, visit paragus.com, that's P-I-R-A-G-I-S, or boundarywaterscatalog.com. Or give us a call at 218-365-6745. Additionally, I would like to thank Joe and Matthew for hosting the Boundary Waters podcast. Thanks, guys. Also, a shout-out to the listeners for all of their support. For the wilderness! This is the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experience we were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue. Oh, and in the deep dark blue, come the northern light. Welcome to episode 39 of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm sitting here with Joe Fredericks. Well, I'm sitting here with Matthew Baxley, and it sounds like it's either raining or snowing or both outside. Well, truly indicative of the season, we're starting to depart from our winter in the North Woods. <laughs> there is little joking in, in Joe's tears, actually. This is one of the most painful times of year for him. Mm. Yes. Uh, you know, which is which is kind of good to know because out of every season of the podcast, Joe, I feel like this winter has been full-on winter coverage through the podcast. Starting with our Thanksgiving trip, winter camping up through Sawbill to this episode and maybe dive a little bit into episode 40 but yeah we have been all in on winter without question and, and it's been great uh it's hard to see the season change it always is mm-hmm. uh and then you have that middle time that's a transition which is rough but you know we're gonna jump into Really, we've we've talked a lot about winter camping, and we're going to jump into uh, our first story today, where we go along with two men who are winter camping for the very first time, and we're going to get a, a look at both what their experience is like and see some of your uh, fishing uh, process at work as well. <laughs> yeah, it's okay, buddy. <laughs> 
Yeah. So uh, I, it is. It's an interesting trip. Uh, two two guys from Duluth, two younger guys from Duluth that we took out winter camp, and you're going to fill us all in about the experience, Matthew, up first here in the episode. And then later, we're going to hear a really remarkable story, one that we've been following for uh, a significant part of the winter here in 2021, uh, the story of Ty Olson, who skied through the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness on the Border Lakes, uh, started west of there in Rainy Lake and, and through uh, Voyager National Park and did a 250 mile plus, actually ended up being like 270 miles because he had around sag in the Boundary Waters at the end of the Gunflint. He had to kind of go off his path a little bit because the ice conditions weren't favorable. So a, a amazing journey, Matthew, and, and for a cause, maybe a lot of people have heard about Ty Olson and Ski for Fire. He raised money for firewood for the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. We'll hear more about it later in the show. But uh, Lindsay, from uh, from last episode, Winter Camping uh, 101, kind of. Uh, Lindsay and Maggie went winter camping and told us about that from their perspective. Lindsay's back on the podcast and is going to tell us about... Um, she actually got to sit down and talk with Ty at the end of the trip. So that's coming up later, too. Excellent. Let's dive into a little more winter while it still lasts. It was a surprisingly warm morning in February when this trip began. The day prior brought several inches of fresh snow and relatively warmer temperatures after two weeks where the thermometer was below zero, more than above. Joe Fredericks and I arrived early to a parking lot in our far northern Minnesota community to meet our tripping team. We exchanged introductions with Dan and Alex, both of whom were excited for the adventure ahead. Joe Fredericks here from the Boundary Waters Podcast. Oh, hi there. I'm uh, Alex Lightlaw. Dan Wolf here, first time into the Boundary Waters. Excited to learn and uh, hopefully catch some fish. And uh, I don't really know what to expect beyond that. But excited. We might get skunked, you know. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's why I got jerky. <laughs> oh, I'm Matthew. Uh, I'm the best person here. <laughs> we reviewed the map that covered a large portion of the easternmost entry points into the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. This trip was to be Dan's first into the BWCA and Alex's first since childhood. The terrain would be new to them both, as would the season. But both of our new travel partners had a reason to be on this trip and were full of more anticipation than apprehension. I'm on this trip professionally because I'm a photographer and cinematographer and this is such a naturally beautiful area. So to be able to capture this is an honor. So I'm Dan Wolf, um, news anchor. And uh, as far as professional motivation for the trip, you know, what keeps me going, I, I just want to uh, tell a, a good, tell a cool adventure story um, for something, an experience like this that I think, you know, 99% of the population, 99.9% .9 of the population will never experience. Um, nor do I blame them <laughs> for not experiencing it. Um, and uh, just showing what it's like to survive in the actual true wilderness in the middle of a very cold winter. In order to ease our collective entry into the wilderness, we elicited the assistance of a local resident named Myron, who ferried our group via snowmobile across the first leg of our journey before crossing the wilderness line. Our goal was to travel several miles so skipping an hour or two of snowshoeing was a bonus for our companions. Myron also seemed to appreciate the opportunity to support our journey. Okay. <laughs> you ever hear that joke? No. Huh? Oh God, the guys, the guys, they went fishing in Canada and they wanted to make sure this guy didn't catch anything, so they told him this was bait. And they he used WD-40. 40 and, and, and he caught all the fish. The house. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Is it okay to mention that you, by name, Myron helped us out? Or? Sure. Yeah, I don't care. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's up to you. I, we, I don't have to be mentioned. Either. Well, I just we recorded your joke. Can I use yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. that I'm just glad I can help. Uh, I, I, I've taken a lot of trips like this, and boy, sometimes 
I, I get something out of just seeing you guys go in because cool. you know, I'm you're too, part of the I'm trip now. Too old for this. <laughs> and you know, if it's an emergency, I showed everyone where the cabin is. If someone gets hurt, we can haul them out. I've done that too. I've hauled a few people out by snowmobile and sled. I never told anyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Myron. Yep. Take care, man. goes a kind man. To cross into the wilderness, we pass by open water where there's just enough flow between lakes and radiant heat from the sun to prevent a full freeze. It's a beautiful sight to see with large snowflakes floating through the air in the gentle way that happens when there is no wind. While Alex, Dan, and I take in the scene, Joe straps on his polk sled and takes off down the lake. There is no doubt as to the content of his thoughts. He is ready to fish, and we have a long way to travel. As the three of us follow his tracks with sleds in tow, I take note of our pace. It's slower than I hoped. Prior to the trip, Joe and I outlined three possible campsites for our base camp. Our hope is to make it to the furthest site, which would set us up for easy access to the best fishing. If the energy of the group demanded, we would stop, instead at the second campsite. It meant longer travel to the fishing spots, but without the heavy loads of the winter camping gear. Well, that is exactly what happened. We stopped at the second site and set up camp, taking care of the essentials of survival in the winter. Joe and Dan then immersed themselves in the pursuit of lake trout just offshore, Meanwhile, Alex and I gathered, hauled, and cut enough wood to fuel the stoves in both hot tents through the night. Amidst the hard work, I made sure to check in with our companions to find out what sort of personal motivations brought them into the wilderness. Here's Alex. When you cross that line back there, it's almost like anything or, you know, everything in your like life in the real world doesn't matter anymore and you, you can just like not really escape but actually just be in the moment and it's just such a surreal like feeling to just not have to worry about anything and I love it how long did it take before you were able to slip into that mode after you crossed that line um I would say you know like when we when I first got here I was dropped off alone. You know, we ro I rode a snowmobile here, and and I was left here alone. And it was just the most still, quiet. Snow was falling. It was huge snowflakes, and just being able to like, I don't know, be out here by myself. And I walked across that line, waiting for the others to get here. And I I don't know. It's just a it's just a really comforting experience. Sounds like it was pretty immediate. And yes. being able to be by yourself really just sped that all up. Yes. Yeah. No, it definitely, it just, honestly, it's something that you, you have to, you can't really like define it. It's just an experience that, you know, every person has to experience on their own. Um, as far as personal motivations, um, I, I think it's an experience that will, help me see things differently uh, going forward in the future uh, we were kind of talking about this last night you know not not necessarily appreciating technology uh, more you know I'm not talking cell phones or anything like that but advances like chainsaws uh, like motorboats four-wheelers some of the some of the fun toys um, that we have at our disposal and I think I'm gonna have a a new high bar for what hard work and hardship is uh, when it comes to being in the outdoors and and <laughs> things are gonna seem probably a lot simpler uh, after this um, and hard work won't seem as hard 
Um, and I, I think m- building some mental toughness out here. You know, last night was was a big part of that, and um, I think I'm going to be better off, um, better off for it after, you know, kind of talking myself through last night, calming myself down, learning how to, you know, handle my wandering, worrying, anxious mind. Um, so yeah, I I think in just about every way I'll be better off. And good workout, lose some weight while I'm out here. That's nice too. <laughs> Yeah. There is one other person who has a notable piece of motivation for the trip, and that is Joe. When he introduces someone to the wilderness, he wants them to have the best possible experience. And in his mind, that includes catching fish. As we're out here starting our second day, full day, no, first full day, second day of the trip, I'm coming to a realization about something because I'm I'm feeling a little pressure this morning to catch some fish, both just for the morale of the team and the inter- the value in catching fish, the food, and many reasons why it's important to catch some fish today. I'm feeling this pressure around that, and what I'm realizing this morning is that uh, over the years, as we've done both winter trips and canoe trips. The less pressure I put on it, the less important it becomes to catch fish, the more fish I seem to catch. Really? Yeah. I have no explanation for that, certainly no scientific one. But it seems the harder you try sometimes, the less likely you are to succeed. When it comes to angling in the Boundary Waters, I know there are people who are probably hearing that and scoffing. But I've seen it repeated from other people's stories when they come back, when I try to point them on some fish. My own experiences early in my Boundary Waters career, if you will. The harder you try, the more pressure you put on you and the situation the less likely it is that you're going to succeed. That could involve things, and I think if there was some sort of scientific or rationale behind it, is rooted in in your canoe, you're you're getting antsy. They're not biting right now. They're not right here. We've got to move over there. You end up paddling 20 minutes. You've wasted 20 minutes that you could have had a line in the water in your spot. You get antsy, boom, bouncing around. Drilling more holes in the winter. I gotta get. A, we gotta go over there. You know, moving is is a key aspect of fishing, but not putting pressure on the situation. You gotta give the fish time. It's hard to fish these lakes, especially new water. Uh, we we don't have a spot. You gotta you gotta get a spot, work it, and then work it. That's the key. May I extrapolate on this? Please. Well, I think it's interesting. You know, there is a dominant sort of narrative of, like, hard work pays off. And I think that is true to a point, most certainly. And you, uh, of anybody I have ever known, work hard to catch fish. Uh, And... I can imagine there, when some people hear what you just said, the harder you try, the less likelihood of success. Would want to write that off as a lazy, a lazy person's perspective. Mm-hmm. But really, there is a sweet spot. It sounds like. Yeah. Between being okay with working hard to get in. And then, like the mental game you were talking about, this is a mental thing that you were discussing last night about not getting worked up. Yep. What, what the main takeaway is, the realization that I had this morning, isn't about working hard necessarily to get the fish. It's about putting pressure on a situation 
either from a mental standpoint or just the physical exhaustion of this isn't working here must move now again don't get me wrong we we relocate often on canoe trips and winter trips it's part of it it's an important part of it but when you combine that with the added stress and anxiety that's when things tend to not produce mm. and whether that's a collision of the mental you know <laughs> i mean my wife would say they're feeling your energy you're putting it out there that you're you're stressed and you you're not going to catch anything you're putting that out there mm. i'm starting to think about that a lot more mm. because i've seen it happen mhm and my own experiences and others mhm so today i'm going to go out there i'm going to get to a good spot that has structure and is likely to hold fish I'm going to give it everything we got. And if it works, that's great. And if it doesn't, we we've given everything that we're capable of giving. And what else can you do? How's it looking in there? Just needs a good stir. Dan's drinking coffee. And we're checking in on night number one, which I've already got a little bit of uh, description of. But I think more than more than night number one, which they shared with me, had its challenges. I'd like to hear uh, how you're both feeling coming into your full day of waking up in the wilderness. Well, I feel a lot better now uh, that night one is over. <laughs> And I'm, I'm drinking coffee. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was a pretty restless night. Just either stocking the stove or worrying about the stove. And uh, knowing that my partner over here was sleeping like a log and happy as a clam. And I was not. <laughs> I, I'm happy for him, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I I am excited. I'm, I'm excited to get moving today. I'm excited to get moving without all of the things that we hauled in. Uh, so moving won't be as strenuous um, and excited to uh, to see our surroundings in the sunshine rather than snow, which was beautiful yesterday, um, and hopefully catch some fish. I think that's what I'm most excited about. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, like he said, I slept like like a dream at least the first. Uh, I don't know. More than the Nine first hours. half of the yeah, <laughs> it was it was quite a bit. Um, uh, I don't really know why I was pretty tired, so just kind of went out. <laughs> um, as for this morning, uh, getting some coffee in me really, you know, spiked my mood, so I'm doing pretty good now. And then gotta thank Dan for that. Um, for today. I'm also excited to get moving, just to warm up, honestly, and to see this new area and just get out and explore. It's really about all I have to say. The summary of the night, I think it, it's probably an accurate description to say it was a rite of passage yeah. into uh, winter camping, the experience of... Dan was describing both the physical discomfort, but probably more predominantly the mental discomfort of being in the space. Do you want to just say a few more words about that? Yeah. Well, it was <clears throat> it was one of those things where you know it, it's kind of a combination of trying to stay warm, worrying about not being warm, and then not being warm at all, uh, but also just you know the feeling of, of isolation out here to a certain degree, you know, no cell service and, uh, you know, not, not being able to get in touch with, you know, uh, my three-year-old if I needed to, or so just, you know, a lot of things weighing on your mind as you're laying there cold, not sleeping. 
And also wondering, am I just wimpier than anybody who's ever been out here? <laughs> and uh, hopefully that's not the case. But, you know, made it through the night, did probably get a few hours of sleep. So mm. that was nice at least. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, the coffee's nice. Yeah, coffee is gold out here. Uh, so Alex, uh, in as you've heard, his goal of the trip is to be behind the camera and there's a camera pointed at me right now so I don't know if I get to ask him any more questions because what was your experience of both physical and and psychological uh, waves of the night so I've done a lot of tent camping in the wilderness in various conditions you know through storms and never winter camping though um, I think I I kind of knew what to expect and just I was so exhausted by the end of the day yesterday that I just literally just put on my sleeping bag curled up in a ball and was just out so there wasn't really any worry um, around 3 4 a.m. when the fire went out and it got pretty cold in here around 6 a.m. that's when the tossing and turning started for me and <clears throat> You know, there was one time that I had to get up to stoke the fire, but that wasn't that bad. Our first full day involved traveling several miles down the lake to explore what could be ideal fishing conditions. Joe, while trying to stay relaxed and positive, was intent on staking out a spot and waiting for the fish. But for me, this was more than just a fishing trip. It was a winter camping trip and exploration of a new part of the wilderness in winter conditions. Which leads me to my greatest joy in the wilderness. That is to seek out unique experiences and unknown places. Joe had mentioned the idea of finding an unmaintained portage into a brook trout lake nestled between two ridges just south of our location. This sent me searching. And after a few hours of quiet fishing, Joe joined me in looking for the portage. Eventually, all four of us climbed our way up the steep hillside to find what we were looking for. And though my appetite for adventure was temporarily satiated, Joe and Dan quickly turned their attention back to the fish. This is the moment of truth. We've got two lines in the water, two side-by-side -side holes drilled through the ice. What are our prospects, fellas? Broke down trout. there. Sorry. <laughs> That's it. They're down there and we're trying to find some brook trout. How you feeling about this, Dan? Uh, I don't want to jinx it, so absolutely hopeless. Mm. <laughs> These winter trips into the wilderness are full of hard work, especially when exploring new places. Fishing is hard. Traveling in the snow is hard. The endless processing of firewood is hard. On my first trip, every task felt hard. It can be just as mentally challenging as it is physical. But most things that used to be hard develop into a sort of comfort. Anticipating and accepting the challenge seems to ease its pain and transforms it into something else. It sounds strange to say that spending time in a landscape that can kill a human relatively quickly feels comforting. But maybe that's the point of learning to find comfort in the discomfort. And it's all connected to Joe's reflections on the fish. Letting go of the pressure is somehow part of learning to thrive in this cold wilderness world. And now it's our final morning. So I turn my attention back to our companions who are navigating all the discomfort and eager to share the impressions this experience has left on them thus far. Yeah, this is Dan, by the way. Um, you know, it's been the, the daytime in particular has been so much fun. Uh, and I, I was sitting here this time yesterday thinking about the work ahead, you know, the, the six miles walking and the uh, drilling holes, which honestly I, I didn't have to do <laughs> much, and the, the climbing and all that, and was, was a little apprehensive 
but it was totally worth it and you know so rewarding at the end of the day and now sitting here you know a couple hours before we head back um just so glad that you know you guys pushed pushed me to get outside my comfort zone and work my butt off and uh i mean just the the stories and and adventure tales that will come from this and it's 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 uh stories and adventures that most people will never experience in their lives um i'm just really happy that i came even though it was mentally challenging at times and physically challenging at times very glad we did this if i could add one thing um i think my biggest takeaway from this trip is how i think i didn't realize how much i needed an experience like this um to kind of get a better idea of what real work real hardship uh is and and how a good i we all have it and and b how <laughs> how much easier life is probably going to seem in comparison going forward i i think this was the experience i didn't know i needed but now that i've experienced it uh i'm really glad i did this is alex obviously um honestly i really enjoyed yesterday um just from it was a gorgeous day you know zero wind just being able to be out there snowshoeing i think probably my favorite part was just trudging up that that slope to get to that uh, other lake that smaller lake that we went to and i don't know it was just it was such a treat just like snowshoeing up this like steep slope and just the reward at the end and just this beautiful lake and there was a time when i was just laying in the snow on the lake and the sun was shining on my face and i don't know i felt so happy and free um honestly uh i've learned so much on this trip and i could really like see myself doing this you know once a year maybe every other year or something it's 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 an experience unlike anything else that i've experienced it's it's hard to show the magnitude and just the overall atmosphere of this place through a camera and through a lens i honestly found myself shooting as wide as i can a lot just to try and capture like the vastness I have so many shots of like Dan just like standing on the middle of the lake, sunset in the background, just ultra wide trying to capture how alone and almost, what's a good term, insignificant maybe, how it makes you feel, I don't know, it's just a massive place and extraordinarily beautiful. Well, Matthew, I feel like I was right out there again with Dan and Alex on that trip, and <laughs> that's where that's where I'm at when I hear that. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot happened out there in a short <laughs> period of time. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think that uh, the takeaway, my impression, is that he would do that again and that he Certainly. you know that it wasn't it was hard in the moment uh but kind of the, that key thing that we that we talked about is uh being comfortable being uncomfortable or whatever it is that came that, out that, of my mouth that was there. your quote uh learning to be comfortable with discomfort yeah and i think that that is a theme in any sort of wilderness especially in the boundary waters when you deviate from uh july and august and you're going out beyond that there's an element of that most certainly and i think we'll continue to come back to that theme yeah definitely and and thanks for those to those guys for being up for this challenge and doing it and and keeping 
keeping a good attitude about it. It wasn't easy, and, and that's a reality of the experience. And their attitudes are what made that trip a success. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's talk about something that was indeed a serious challenge. Uh, Ty Olson and his journey across the border lake. Solo journey. Solo journey, uh, no resupply, 270 miles across the border lakes, including the Boundary Waters Lakes, where you were up on mountain ice skating earlier this winter. Mm -hmm. uh, he crossed that lake, Sag, Gunflint, down the Grand Portage of Pigeon River. I mean, this was a journey to be remembered, certainly. And I think, as we're going to hear uh, from Ty, the thing that he wants people to remember is what he was doing it for. The why. The why he was there. Not so much the the... The ins and outs of his trip are the fact that wolves, you know, he encountered packs of wolves out there on multiple occasions and he didn't have any dangerous encounters, but they were looking at him, checking him out mm. and vice versa. Uh, those are stories that you're not going to hear if you ever talk to Ty. That's a secondary element. It's the why he was there that he focuses on. Uh, the, I mean, just the, the hardship of the 40, he had an 80 degree swing in the temperatures it was 40 below zero on the first couple days of his trip over toward Rainy Lake. When we were up there in Grand Portage, when he came down to Lake Superior and ended the trip March 9th, it was about 50 degrees. So that's almost that's almost 90 degrees, actually, mm -hmm. swing. Yeah. Um, he went through a lot out there. 27 days he was in there. And uh, you were up there when he came down off the Grand Portage. You got some photos and talked to him. I was up there, Lindsay was there too, and she actually got to sit down and talk with Ty. Uh, let's jump into their conversation. So you just finished over a 250 mile expedition. Yeah, it turned out to be 270. 270. Yeah, because of a lot of bushwhacking and, and detours around open water, it turned out to 270. Right. So from Rainy Lake to Lake Superior, you have you were pulling a ton of gear. Mm -hmm. I looked at your Instagram, saw the two sleds you were pulling. Yeah. You're skiing, no resupply, so you're carrying everything with yeah. you. So yeah. after all of that, how how are you feeling like right now being here, both like mentally and physically and even spiritually? How, how are you feeling? Um, um, yeah, it's just very, it's just kind of surreal. I mean, I didn't go to the North Pole, so I'm not trying to make it seem like it is something that impressive, but it was hard. And, um, you know, you think about this moment for the whole time you're doing it, and there's a lot of months of preparation. And, uh, I mean, I trained for this in the summer. I've been thinking about this trip for a long time, so to, to be done with it is just weird. Um, and you don't really think about the end. You just kind of think about the next hour, maybe the next day at the most. But if you start thinking about beyond that, it's just, it's, it's, you're going to make mistakes and it just, it gets, and then it just gets monotonous and you don't want to do that. So to be here, it, um, it feels good, and it feels good that um, not only it had an impact, but uh, it got people talking about the the real the real reason behind the trip. Which, that was my next question. Oh well, I'll interview <laughs> myself then. Yeah. So my next question was, what was the purpose of of this journey? We live on stolen land, and it still affects us and it still affects the people from whom the land was stolen. That is why I did this trip. And that's a deep question, and it's a complex thing that we're just not talking about that has long-lasting impacts in very, in, in very immediate ways. And one way, in particular, is you look at Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, mm -hmm. poorest place in America, there's thousands of people there that are struggling to stay warm in the winter. Someone dies there every year from the cold. And that that's just, you know, it's crazy. And um, this trip was a good way to, for one, meet that immediate need. Hey, people are freezing. Let's raise money for this incredible nonprofit that meets immediate needs at this place. Mm -hmm. And we can buy them some firewood. And so that was, that was why I did the trip but it was also by the way why do they need firewood um why is there so much poverty and um you know i met a guy 
uh, I, I met a, a couple people on my trip. You know, it was basically in the wilderness the whole time. But I, um, I think it was, um, uh, where was it? It was like, uh, I think it was a SAG. I met a guy ice fishing and, you know, he was like, yeah, well, they just, they just don't know how to adapt. And I'm like, well, why, do, why should they have to adapt? <laughs> and also adaptation, if it's required, is precisely because we forced that situation mm-hmm. and and like they were here first and he's like well then they're going to be cold and that pretty much sums up one of the ways one of the answers to this you know and that's just not that is just not okay for me and that shouldn't be okay for anybody who knows the history of native people and history of of the land um and so if they if they need firewood we got we have to ask why they need firewood and we have to ask why why is there poverty we have to ask um what got what's the historical situation that that got them here what what, what's the treaty what how do we break the treaty you know um but not only that like what does it mean if i live on land that was that was taken in in a in a in a in a fraudulent treaty or if i live on land that was just like outright stolen from natives a long time ago just is is it you could say well it was a long time ago sure but it's still it's still impacting me it's still impacting natives so i grew up in north dakota and i live on on land that was taken from the red lake and pemina ojibwe in the 1866 treaty of old crossing and i didn't know that growing up but once i learned i realized wow you know if my if my ancestors from norway hadn't been given land i wouldn't be here and i wouldn't have had the education i have i wouldn't be healthy i wouldn't be able to do this trip uh and so it so that land affects me and the people the the descendants of those same people that signed the treaty are still here and they live in red lake and live in and they live in turtle mountain and they have relatives in grand portage they have relatives in um, leech lake Lax. the ojibwe people are are they have relatives all over the place those people how are they doing there's just there's a lot of poverty a lot of addiction there's diabetes and why 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 are there these problems is it because they haven't adapted well enough is it because is it because simply because of the race or is it because there's a historical reason for it you know and that that to me was uh the most important part of the trip is thinking about these things and i don't i don't have the answers like i i'm just a guy out, out skiing and and and, I, and i'm not like you know there's a lot of people that are well-meaning that just, that just don't know this stuff so this is really just about we just got to talk about it i mean we spent hundreds of years getting ourselves into the situation we need to spend a long time just learning about it you know i spent 10 years learning about this stuff before i felt like i could do something about it and i and i don't really i, I don't you know, there's so much more that can be done and i just but i, I knew that i needed to at least start engaging others so we can just learn together and talk about it like this yeah, I hear you. I hear you talking. I think the story you shared is a great example of a lot of people's attitudes. And it sounds like part of this journey was um, kind of educating and bringing awareness to hopefully change some of those attitudes and perspectives. Yeah, you know, the, the, the thing with bringing awareness, um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of like, awareness raising expeditions often they're climate related which i think is fine but we need to do stuff that is like asking uncomfortable questions or saying uncomfortable things or or doing things at risk you know people not agreeing with you um so awareness shouldn't be raising awareness for something we're all going to agree with you know or 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 most people aren't going to have a problem with needs to be needs to be something that's gonna irk people you know and um and so I've never been a fan of awareness unless it's been something that really needs to, we need to be aware about. <laughs> and, uh, and cause awareness, what does that do? Okay. Now we know. Okay. So what, like it needs to be awareness with, with an intent. So uh, that was why I did the trip the way I did. It was, it's like, okay, here's an immediate need that we can, we can, we, so we can have an actual impact. The, we can raise money that has an actual impact and buys wood. Um, so it's more than just about raising awareness, but we, and it's not just about answering the question, like, okay, but why do they need wood and, and, and poverty and what's my place in that? It's like, there's, there's another step even beyond that. It's like, what, 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 what worldview got us into this? You know, what, um, how do we see the land differently than the people who were here? 
before us. Like, why do we see the land as, as merely a resource entirely for our consumption? How, why do they traditionally see the, see the world not as necessarily a resource, but as, as, a inter, as an interrelated communion? Um, that's not just some romantic, hippie, new age, poetic idea. That has actual consequences for not only the natural world, but ourselves, what it means to just how to live a meaningful life. And so th- this, this, this trip, I, I think really is about, uh, I don't do anything that's not about like the meaning of life. This is about like, we need to like un- recover these things that we have just smothered. And um, so a, a part of that is just like connecting with, uh, with a, a sense of place, with, uh, with nature, with, um, but it's, but we can't do that without uh, acknowledging that the, that, um, that the land was stolen. I know it's a roundabout answer, but there's a lot to, I think, unpack. So. Yeah. You mentioned um, an organization um, that you teamed up with, yeah. One Spirit, correct? Yeah. Can you say, can you talk a little bit yeah. more about One Spirit? So, One Spirit, man, there's like, I think, 30,000 uh, people on Pine Ridge, Pine Ridge Reservation, which is very remote. It's very kind of out of the way. And Pine Ridge has a long history just because it's been in the news for like 150 years. It's um, the home of the Oglala Lakota Band, um, the one, of the, one of the seven council fires of the Lakota Dakota people. And they um, have been engaged in, with the government in, uh, uh, for a long period of time. Um, you know, uh, um, uh, and, and, and some of their uh, more unfortunate highlights are, you know, the Wounded Knee Massacre of 1891, where several hundred women and children were, were murdered by the, by the U.S. Army. And then in the 1970s, the American Indian Movement also occupied Wounded Knee. And so you have a lot of awareness about Pine Ridge and it being very poor in its history. And so you have a lot of these nonprofits that, that kind of gone in there and tried to, tried to help, but very few of them listen. Very few of them listen to the Lakota people and try to listen to how they want to be helped. And One Spirit is the name of the nonprofit I'm working with. Doesn't have an office there. Doesn't pay any white people. Their whole goal is just to listen to what the Lakota need and facilitate the resources to meet to meet those needs. And Jerry Baker, executive director, she's not native. She lives. Jerry lives in New York or New Jersey? New Jersey. In New Jersey, you know, and she runs this remotely, has an incredible team of volunteers, and anyone that gets paid is Lakota. And so there's various programs. There's a food program because there's there's lack of food. I mean, kids starve, literally. There's a wood program. Um, There's a youth center. And these are all um, ways to, to, they raise money to then pay Lakota people because jobs are the, a huge problem to to, uh, to assist with these programs. So I know maybe not the answer you're looking for, a little long-winded, but um, this is a this is a, a special nonprofit in the sense that they really listen to Lakota people. And I've been to Pine Ridge. I've I, I met the people who are running these programs. Um, I wasn't about to go do this without really making sure that this is a nonprofit that's that's actually doing it the right way. And I'm just like blown away. It's the it's the best way to help people. It sounds like you um, really made some important connections and relationships in this process um, and really went about this in the most respectful way that you possibly could have. Yeah, I I just don't know. um, You know, you can't, uh, being a white guy, you got to make sure you aren't making more, you're not doing damage, you know, because sometimes... We get excited about the things we find out, and then like, okay, how can I, how can I help? And then you don't realize that you're just making things worse. And the only way you can really help is is by just you know talking to people, listening to them, really trying to understand what's going on. And um, you know, I, I couldn't do this without developing a relationship with the people that I'm helping. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a, a very important way to go about it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a, like a definitely important important piece of this. And so with this, I know that you set a goal. I think was it to raise like twenty thousand dollars for firewood yeah. for the Pine Ridge Reservation. And yeah. but I think you've raised quite a bit more than that, yeah. right? Do you? I, I was told forty three thousand, so that's good. Um, but you know, and that, that actual that'll have real impact. That that keeps people warm. You know, that gives people some jobs. But like, 
that's that's pennies for the real problems you know mm-hmm. and uh that's why it always had to be about more than just firewood and if i can just get people if i just got a few people on the right road of thinking that's all it takes and it's gonna take a lot of years and maybe maybe other things they'll do other things and and it, um I, I i think people are still going to be cold unless we reorient our relationship to the land and to indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Do you have any feedback or advice for people who maybe haven't really thought about, um, you know, really thought deeply about Mm -hmm. the history of the United States Mm -hmm. and that so many people are living on stolen land? What, What would be your advice to kind of dive deeper into that process yeah man i think that's a good question because you hear a lot more these days like these land acknowledgements like uh, i want to start this meeting of acknowledging that this is taking place in the grand porch band blah 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 blah. that's good but i think it also turns a lot of people off because they realize okay well so what what's that what's that do yeah well i mean it got you thinking about it it did do something but i also understand the kind of like suspicion of, of 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 that kind of holier than thou posturing that some of that might come off but um, I think the simple way would just be starting, like, who whose land do you live on? And are they still there? They likely are. And who, where are they? Uh, is there a reservation nearby? What's life like there? If it's not so good, I mean, you're, you're halfway there of, of figuring out what you can do. <laughs> and um, so it's not a lot of white people start from like a, a romantic or or aesthetic appreciation of native culture the powwows the feathers the, you know whatever like the spirituality but that's good but the culture isn't dead they're not dead they're still here it's not they're not stuck in 1860 riding horseback living in teepee smoking a peace pipe but neither are we we're not still vikings you know we're not still we're not still um uh, pirates like a culture's change um, they still have all the traditional teachings, so we have to move past a, just a a cultural interest in native history, or like, like a, just like a, a, like an interest in native culture. We have to move towards like, what is the native present, and what is my relationship to that, and um, and, and a lot of that also has to do with like, who are you, where did your family come from. Do you know anything about your great-great-grandparents? Where they emigrate from? Every single one of your great-grandparents emigrated from somewhere. And they emigrated to some land. And that, dis- and that land displaced someone. Mm-hmm. You have to learn that. Because that, is you- that makes up who you are. Native people understand this very well. That our an- we-, we are our ancestors. They're not separate from us. They make up who we are. And, um, and in some way, we have to account for them. You don't have to throw them under the bus. Like, I'm proud of my ancestors, but I also have to account for what it means to be my ancestors and what it means to have grown up and to benefit and to live on land that they that they settled. Mm-hmm. You know, I've noticed throughout this interview, Ty, you're saying, um, you're saying things like, like we and you, and I can hear that you're directly, it sounds to me like you're dire- directly talking to white people. Um, in a way, uh, or did I get yeah, that wrong? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely, of course. Um, but also talking to you, you, like who? Do you know your ancestry? Um, I do. That's yes, good. I do, That's and good. I know that my family benefited from um, the Homestead Act, mm-hmm. which was, you know, a part of stealing land. I know now I live on Lake Superior, Anishinaabe land that is also stolen. I. I bought land here, yeah. and even a part of that feels. Yeah. It's such a hard question because because we're because I, I didn't ask to be born into this. If I live on someone's land, then um, uh, like it's uninvited. No, we actually, if we had came here as relatives rather than as occupiers or settlers, it would be a different story. It, there, I, I don't think that natives wouldn't it's not like they're like get the hell out of our land you know it's like it's like it's like it's like don't come in here and tell us it's now your land and tell us what to do which is what we've been doing for like 500 years so i think we can live on stolen land in a way um but i i i don't have an i don't have an answer to that 
because I, I, I'm not in a position where I can say where I, I have worked that out, but I, I know that it ha- we, we can't, ju- we have to be uncomfortable with it. We have to sit with that for a really long time. But then we have to start thinking about like, how can we, how can we ski 235 miles and raise $42,000 for people? And like, what, what can we do about it? Like, I mean, I don't know. This is my, this is my attempt to work through this question that I'm, I'm going I'm to think about my whole life. Yeah. I mean, this, this problem is, is, is centuries deep. It's going to be, it's going to be a, probably decades of just being like uncomfortable and like trying to figure things out. So on one of your Instagram posts, you said that you have, um, let me, let me pull it up. So I remember, I think you said something you owe your life to stolen land. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I mean, like I live, I wouldn't be here if my, I mean, all of my great, great grandparents emigrated from Norway. I grew up on my, on, on the homestead of my great, great grandfather, Samuel Olson, who emigrated from Norway in 1877 and um, like I know everything about my ancestors I'm like, not everything but like I know I know every single one where they all came from in Norway and I know every single place where they where they all emigrated to and I and I know every place I know the original original inhabitants of every place they emigrated to so like I I know I got the criminal record you know I, I had the I have the file like I know the land whose land it was and I know the treaties and I know the history of the treaties, and a lot of people have a problem with this term, like stolen. So I'm like, but there's treaties, that's not stolen land. It's like, yeah, but you just read for five minutes and realize, like, who are the special interests of those treaties? Who who's pushing the treaties? A railroad company, probably a lumber company, a very corrupt politician. Like, I mean, you can say it's like legal, but like, it, it's not. And there's very, I have not come across a treaty that that was like anything but in the favor of the negotiators. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I know the land it was in some way created as private property and then claimed by someone who didn't have a, a just claim over it. So I, of course, owe my life to it because I wouldn't be here had my ancestors not been given that land. Um, I just would never have been born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, part of your route was in the Boundary Waters. Yeah. Um, and then you ended here where we're at right now, which is in Grand Portage. Mm-hmm. And so why did you choose to do the route you did, especially in the Boundary Waters and in Grand Portage? And why this time of year? Um, well, the route just, like, I think it's just, uh, kind of a given. It's been, it's just been used, not, you know, they're called the Voyager's Highway, which you think, if you think about it, is basically a racist term. Why is it the Voyager's Highway? Who, who showed them the highway? I mean, it's been used for thousands. It's, I mean, that's also like proved by Western science. Archaeology has been used for thousands of years by you know, indigenous people. It's an it's an indigenous highway. Um, so I mean, it's just it's just a great highway, and uh, it's a great waterway, and it lent itself to a, a, a trip like this. Um, and where else are you going to do it? I mean, we we've, we've farmed, settled, logged, mined, and destroyed everywhere else. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I could have, you know, I guess I could have just skied through farmland through South Dakota but I don't know it would been a little bit a little bit difficult to do that um, and why this time of year well um, I've, I've never heard of anyone doing it um, the whole thing from Rainy Lake to Grand Portage in the winter at least not without resupplies because that's just a whole other game I mean once once you're once you're hauling food and fuel for a month it's just it's a lot it's a lot of work and it's a lot of preparation and so it just felt like a really good trip for the cause and um, a, a really exciting challenge that I felt like people would pay attention to. And it's not just like, I, it's not like I wanted the attention. I, I also just wanted to do it. I mean, I was, um, it's just something I've, I've thought about doing. Okay. And why, why did you decide to end in Grand Portage? Um, well, I mean, that's, this is like where, this is the gateway to the interior. Um, it's traditionally this is where uh, the, the 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 fur trade you know, began its its uh, its trip to to, to to trade with the natives, um, and it just felt like I mean I have to start I have to end at like where, where there's no other I mean there's no snow here there's no ice I had to I have to end where I can't go any longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so what what is your um, what is your relationship to the Boundary Waters? Um, this is great. I'm glad now I can finally admit this uh, now that I'm done. My first ever trip to the Boundary Waters was actually last year, and it was in the winter. Uh, I did five days with my girlfriend. She's Swedish, so she could handle it. I'd uh, never been before. And, uh, and then my first ever summer trip was 
this summer. I did three solo, solo trips. And yeah, but I'm also like a very good researcher and a meticulous planner. So I, I felt prepared for this and I was a good skier and I liked the cold. So I say that because, you know, people think, I mean, this is a really hard thing to do, but like, just, just go do it. <laughs> you know, just go do it. People are so scared of the wilderness. Like there's nothing out there. There's literally nothing there. I saw like some moose tracks, five wolves, and that was it. I didn't see anything. Yeah, there's some dangerous open water. Um, and a few other things, but like, um, yeah. So my relationship with the Boundary Waters is not a long one, uh, but um, I, I, I do think that we should stop thinking about it as just a playground. Um, native people, it's just native land. It's just native land, it still is native land. The Lac LaCroix community on the border is still there. There was someone building Lac LaCroix when I went there. I had like three separate engage, engagements with them. They were so cool. Um, they, they, they did an offering uh, an offering at the Picture Rocks, which I didn't take any pictures of or I haven't talked about just because it was such a, like a sacred thing. Um, I had, I mean, it just, we talked about all these th same things, like how assimilation has affected the communities and the loss of culture, language, that they're still there. Canoeists flip them off in the winter because they're on their boats. They can do whatever they want. It's their land. Like, I, I think that the Boundary Waters shouldn't be owned by the government. It should be owned by, by either the uh, Minnesota Chippewa Tribe or, like, a confederation of, like, Lac Lacroix First Nation, Boyce Fort, even, like, Red Lake and Grand Portage. It should be owned by them. And it's not like they're going to kick white people out. They can make money off of us, you know? I mean, it, this is their land. It's native land. They're not gone. So my relationship to the Boundary Waters is, uh, uh, it's native land. <laughs> I really appreciate your honesty yeah, with yeah. all of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, is there anything else you wanted to add that maybe I didn't ask you? No, I think you did a really great interview. Um, and um, I just I just hope people don't go out of this thinking, oh, that was a cool trip. But I hope they just think about their relationship to the land that they live on. Especially, hopefully, when they're in the Boundary Waters. Especially the Boundary Waters. We have to flip the script. It's not, it's not a history of the fur trade. It's not about, like, let's go have fun in the canoe. That's all great. It's all part of it. But, like, let's think about whose land this is and how, it's, and how, and how not having access to it in the way that they want still affects them. I mean, a, a Grand Porridge band member in 1999 tested this by using a motorized vehicle um, a motorized boat and they got like arrested and they went all the way to the Supreme Court but like it still hasn't been settled because the, because to, to settle it would be to say like they can actually do whatever the hell they want under their treaty rights you know like they should be able to do whatever the hell they want um, but uh, yeah that's a, maybe another podcast <laughs> I know and I, I would love to interview you more and ask you all about you know your gear and yeah, all of that stuff but but I think I think the gear stuff the gear stuff is not nearly isn't as important as these questions. Although this was a huge, a huge part. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot. We stole the land. We stole the waters. We stole those men. We stole their daughters and sold that land and sold that water. Sold those men and sold their daughters. We owe the land, we owe the land, we owe the land, we owe the land. And to its people again, to its people again, to its people. So many of the trips that I go on, Joe, I want to bask in the glory of. And there is not much of that happening in this story. No. It's why he was there. It's about the history of the land, the stolen land, as uh, Ty point blank says it throughout the conversation. Not mincing words there. Mm -hmm. Not reflecting on sunsets or sunrises or meals or anything of that nature and that in our, in my interactions with Ty you know I don't want to speak for you but that was my impression as well 
Indeed, and I, I think one of my one of my takeaways is, you know, my my ego is not enough to power me through the hardest of life circumstances, but belief in higher good and values that transcend uh, human experience that can motivate a person through the most intense situations and i admire that about ty that that he has so much belief in his why no i talked to ty as we were leaving um from grand portage he's very tired obviously he wanted to get a cheeseburger and be at one with the burger that was his <laughs> goal that's all he when, when we were done talking with him it was time for us to go you yes. know and uh, I did say, you know, it'd be great to go on a canoe trip with your dad. His, his mom and dad and sister were there, too. I said, Matthew and I'd love to go on a Boundary Waters canoe trip with you. I think that'd be a lot of fun and see what comes of that. He said, well, yeah, it would be. It'd be four white guys sitting around and we could talk about how we're on stolen land. And, <laughs> and, and I said, let's make it happen. Yes. <laughs> so perhaps we'll hear from Ty again uh, down the road on the podcast. But his trip is one to be remembered. And uh, this podcast is just a piece of that equation. Well, on that note, Joe, we wrap up 39 episodes of this podcast, and I am thrilled that we are able to cover everything from an intro to winter camping to a 27-day winter epic for a valuable cause. I think that that's a wrap. Well, that sounds good to me, Matthew. As always, thanks for listening to the podcast, supporting us on the podcast. Really appreciate it, everyone. Please be in touch with us. Got a lot of things happening here as we transition out. And it's still snowing outside. I'm going out. I think I see a tupa. Snow angels. I just sing when I paddle Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true We're gonna get through to the other side Out in the night the waves beat the shore You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar Oh, me, rock me in my dreams You can roll me, rock me in my dreams So I like to sing, I love to dance I Play the fool if I got the chance All around the campfire light All around the campfire light All around, all around, all around The campfire light